From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling. I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm very good. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. I'm I'm back from our, our quick trip to Orlando your neck and your kingdom Walt Disney World yeah it's and we had a very nice meal together shared at the top of the world yeah so to top say. of the world or <laughs> yeah, top of the world at, at California Grill we did we had a, a very lovely evening with both of our wives yes there we had we had a beautiful table overlooking the Magic Kingdom I mean I, we couldn't have had a better table I don't think oh absolutely so uh, yeah. it's it's always nice to be treated like royalty, especially when you show up and it's it's not the fanfare of showing up like you're Pete Warner and everyone knows who you are. <laughs> it's it's it just it was it was like being a normal person and it ended up just being so wonderful and lovely. So uh I I'm very happy that we got to to spend that time together, but for the rest of your vacation, uh was it was it enjoyable? It was very nice. We were there primarily because Carol was speaking at a medical conference and she was receiving an award. Mm-hmm. So we were actually at the SeaWorld Renaissance, which is a very nice hotel. Um, service there was excellent. We paid it for it ourselves, so I can feel like to talk <laughs> about it. It was beautifully appointed. You would like it because lots of USB ports and plugs in yes. very modern room. How everything should be. I know. I agree. I agree because it was very different when we moved over to Walt Disney World. Yeah. And um, and and uh, yeah. So so that went very well. It was very nice. Carol had a good time. She was exhausted. And then we um, we you know we we did go to Disney Springs mm-hmm. beforehand. We ate at Paddlefish. Had a really good lunch there. Lobster corn dogs. Excellent. Oh yeah, those are those are very good. One of my favorites I there. Know. I know Carol could have had it as an entree. Oh, I mean, she enjoyed yeah, absolutely. Them that much. <laughs> but um, but but our meal there was very good. We had a fantastic server, and yeah, then then it was the conference. I did break away one day to go to Animal Kingdom, my favorite park. <gasps> the day started out fine. <laughs> there was it was hot and humid, but I expected it, and it wasn't overbearing. And then at one o'clock, oh my gosh, it was biblical rain. I mean, yeah. It, it <laughs> you you firsthand got to see that uh, that the typical fifteen minute thunderstorms of uh, Florida in the summer is not what we're putting up with right now. It's no. it's hours and hours and hours of just the worst weather. So I I, I feel bad that you had yeah. to see that, but. At least now you feel my pain. Yeah. It went into the evening, and it was that way for about two or three nights. Yeah. Or days, it was that way. 
And when we switched over to Walt Disney World, after the conference, we went to Walt Disney World to celebrate our wedding anniversary. And that's when we met up with you. We met up with Rhino, and, and we had drinks at Trader Sam's, mm-hmm. and I got my Nautilus. And then we uh, we stayed at the Polynesian Village Resort. Cal and I have always wanted to stay there. And their DVC villas are very nice. And yeah, uh, we yeah. really like them. I mean, they did an excellent job on those. Yeah. And, and they do have a fair number of of USB ports and plugs and all that. Rooms are a little dark, but uh, it, still, it, they were just beautifully appointed. I'm assuming that Carol took the bed and you pulled down the sleeper underneath the TV with the Lilo and Stitch uh, uh, hideaway <laughs> bed, right? Well, you know, we, we should have pulled it down because there, what we did not have an accessible room because we were only there one night. And the beds are very cleverly designed because they have drawers in the bottom and then they have this open area near the foot where you can just sort of slide your suitcases in and out as you need them. But they're a little too high for Carol because Carol's not a tall woman Mm. and she couldn't get up into the beds without assistance. And so um, probably being in that sleeper bed would have been more comfortable for her. At SeaWorld Renaissance, we were in a in an accessible room. It was so high she couldn't get in or out without assistance still. And they said the beds were lower wow. than in their standard room. They actually, they were terrific. They came in and actually removed the bed frame for us. Oh, my gosh. So service. We, yeah, so we had the box springs on the floor and then the mattress and so and then it was fine for her wow well it sounds like you had a quite the quite the week yeah it was wild and i did use mobile ordering for the first time because i i happened to be in pandora world of avatar Uh, i just sort of scoped out the shop to see if there was anything you know exciting in there and that's when the heavens opened and i was going to go to lunch right after that so i stood thinking it was the 15 minute rain i stood in a doorway and chatted (laughs) with the cast member after 40 minutes when it became quite apparent this was no 15 minute rain i thought well i was gonna go eat at the canteen right across the the river because now it was deluge there it was i mean animal kingdom has a hard time handling the rain and and so I um I did mobile ordering there, ordered what I wanted, and then it wasn't it wasn't ten minutes, maybe it was five minutes. My food was ready. I dashed over there. They weren't going to let me in except I showed them on my phone. I had a mobile order pickup, and then they let me in. And then I because you know everybody was taking shelter. And then I found one chair. Yeah. Um. And then and so I uh, so I was able to eat. So that mobile ordering worked very well oh yeah it's it is a wonderful tool for sure and i learned how to use FastPass plus a little better because i was moving fast passes all over the place Mm. there's no good way um, to use it but that's just my opinion on it well i think i i I learned some of the nuances of it so um so anyway so i had a good time i didn't get to see the tiger cubs because when i went uh when I went to see them in the morning, they were sleeping in the tunnels. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I'll go back in the afternoon because the cast members said they tend to come out around two or three. But around noon, all the trails were closed because they said there was lightning in the area. Mm-hmm. And and there, and there was, there, we could hear the thunder and all that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so. And then we started to see the lightning. So, huh. anyway. But well, no, so it was, it was great fun. Very good. 
We all have favorite moments and characters from Disney films. Our favorite characters and moments out of the Walt Disney Studio from the 1930s through the 1970s were most likely animated by one of the Nine Old Men, a term Walt Disney applied to a team whose work is regarded as the benchmark for character animation. After Walt's passing, the studio promoted the accomplishments of these men to the public, in part to show Walt Disney's legacy of animation remained in good hands. Currently, the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco's historic Presidio is featuring a special exhibition through January 7, 2019, called Walt Disney's Nine Old Men, Masters of Animation. We are pleased to be speaking with the exhibition's guest curator, today, Don Hahn, on this episode of Connecting with Walt. Now, Don Hahn is producer of the Walt Disney Studios animated feature, The Lion King, and the animated classic Beauty and the Beast, the first animated film to be nominated for an Academy Award in the Best Picture category. Don continues Walt's legacy of the True Life Adventure film series as the executive producer of the breathtakingly beautiful Disney nature films, Earth, Oceans, African Cats, and Chimpanzee. His other credits include The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Fantasia 2000, The Emperor's New Groove, and Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Don also co-produced, directed, and narrated Waking Sleeping Beauty, a documentary film about Disney feature animation from 1984 to 1994, and the executive producer of Disney's live-action feature Maleficent. His books on animation, art, and creativity include the bestseller Brainstorm, the acclaimed art series Drawn to Life, and the recently released Yesterday's Tomorrow, Disney's Disney's Magical Mid-Century. Don holds two honorary doctorate degrees and serves on the board of directors of PBS Southern California and the advisory committee of the Walt Disney Family Museum. Don, welcome to Connecting with Walt. Thank you. Thank you for the nice introduction, too. Much appreciated. Oh, oh you're welcome. Um, and, and that's only a small part of, of <laughs> your accomplishments. <laughs> so now, now, a lot of our listeners may have absolutely no idea who the nine old men are. So um, who were they? Well, it, it, you know, it's a name that was given kind of by Walt to his lead animators, and he gave it almost with tongue-in-cheek, kind of as a joke, because it's a phrase that comes from politics. It comes from FDR, from President Franklin Roosevelt back in the uh, 30s, kind of the Depression, really. And he had a very cantankerous, grumpy Supreme Court, and um, which we can all relate to, because I think the Supreme Court's just generally been in the news a lot lately. Well, it's nice to know that it was always in the news. So FDR had the Supreme Court, and he called them the nine old men because they wouldn't pass any of his legislation for the New Deal and that kind of thing. So Walt turned to his uh, animators, uh, who were his leadership at the studio, who had been with him for 20 years by that time, and started calling them the nine old men, and the label stuck. And they weren't particularly old either. They were probably in their 40s by the time that happened. I mean, you have to realize a lot of these guys were in their 20s and right out of school when they started on Snow White. So... Um, is a real young group of people, amazingly talented, and and uh, that that name kind of stuck with them, um, and has through the ages. So um, they weren't necessarily the first animators. They didn't necessarily invent animation. Uh, they weren't certainly the only animators. Animators incredibly collaborative. Um, but they were some of the leadership that Walt really, really relied on, not just in animation, but some of them went on to do television, to direct television shows, to work at Imagineering, and really contribute to what we know today as the culture of Disney. 
Mm-hmm. And now I'm curious, now, how did you first learn about the Nine Old Men when you were growing up? Because like, I first learned a lot about them uh, watching the Disney Channel series, the Disney Family Album, in the mid-1980s. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I came to work at the studio in 1976, uh, mm-hmm. which was a few years ago. And they were, many of these guys were still working there. So one of my first jobs, and after I was at the studio about a year, I started working with uh, Wooly Reitherman. And Wooly was uh, the producer-director of all the movies I grew up on, like Jungle Book and 101 Dalmatians and these movies that I idolized. And so here I am, his runner, basically. I was just a guy who got him coffee and threaded his moviola and took notes. Um, and so it was really this amazing kind of thing. I had to pinch myself all the time to think I was in the room with him. And then in the room with him, he would say, well, let's get Frank and Ollie up here and, and do some story notes and let's, let's see if Milt's around. And so they would come up. Now, at the time, I didn't know that they were the night old man. And, you know, they didn't either. I don't think it was a, a, a label that they really pushed out there a lot. I think some of them, even uh, Ward Kimball, I think, was a, well, a little embarrassed by it. It was like, oh, that's kind of self-congratulatory to have this brand name on us. Um, and they didn't always work together even, but they were, without doubt, the leadership of the studio. So I came across them first uh, in my job. Uh, so I was probably the, one of the luckiest guys on the planet for just being around when they were still at the studio in their years right before they retired. Mm-hmm. That, and... So what now? What prompted you to be involved in the exhibition, Walt Disney's Nine Old Men: Masters of Animation, at the Walt Disney Family Museum? Well, I've always been a fan of the Walt Disney Family Museum. Uh, you know, it's it's a really special place. I've been to a bazillion museums around the world, and it's kind of unrivaled. The amount of care that Diane and Ron Miller put into it to begin with is pretty amazing. Um, and I was a small, small part of it before the museum opened. Um, we consulted on some things and, and, you know, I was kind of always around the fringes of it because I loved the idea. Um, and I loved, like you guys, it was a chance to keep Walt's, uh, legacy alive. And, you know, so it's very similar to what you do in terms of your podcast and your writing is to try to keep the human being Walt Disney alive. Um, because as generations go by, a lot of people may not know who Walt Disney was. Or if you ask them, which I have at different times, you ask a bunch of fifth graders, they might go, well, didn't he like trains? Or, you know, didn't he, isn't he frozen somewhere? Uh, you know, there's all this <laughs> misinformation out there, and it's fun to um, mm-hmm. be a part of it. So I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Walt Disney's work and his studio and his legacy. Um, and so I count myself lucky to have been part of that museum from its uh, onset. About five years ago... Um, Ron Miller asked me to be on the advisory board uh, along with uh, Andreas Deja and some really amazing people. Um, and then most recently, I, I, Ron Miller called. So Ron, who I've known for 40 years, uh, used to be my boss. He used to work at the studio, ran the studio when I was just a kid running coffee around for all these guys. And he called probably two years ago now and said, Don, I want to do a show about the night old man. I worked with them. I leaned on them. I counted on them to teach me about animation. And I want to show off these guys. They've never had a show. And I have trouble saying no to Ron Miller. I just admit that publicly. Um, I, he's, uh, he's bigger than I am. He used to play professional football. But aside from that, mm-hmm. I think he's <laughs> an amazing uh, talent who's often unrecognized for pulling the studio together during very difficult times after mm-hmm. Walt passed away. Uh, for pushing the art of animation forward, 
uh, and recruiting new talent into the studio, of which I was a beneficiary. And so I had trouble saying no to Ron. And plus, I knew these guys. And I think uh, he knew that I knew them. And so it, it was a great opportunity to pay tribute to them. There had never been a gallery show about the Night Old Men. This is the first. And um, so I was excited about it because of that. I was excited to be able to go to the families and ask them for artwork. I wanted to show these guys as artists because I really believe they are the equivalent of the French Impressionists. They're the equivalent of the uh, Golden State Warriors are in basketball or the, you know, 39 Yankees. You know, they're, they're, they're the dream team of animation. Uh, so to go to their families and see the artwork and pull things and select uh, a group of drawings and photographs and ephemera and memorabilia to tell their story was uh, a, a real privilege and really fun, too, I have to say. How did you, there is so, I can't even begin to describe how much artwork and memorabilia and things are, because it's not just their Disney art that's there, it's their personal art. Some of them um, created fine art. Uh, there's a lot of their personal artifacts in there. Ward Kimball has quite a, quite a bit in there. Some of it I recognize from the Disney Family album. And um, But uh, how did you... What guided you in your selections for what would be displayed for each of the animators? Well, I, I had a lot of help in the selections. I have to say, first of all, John Canemaker, the great animation historian, wrote a terrific book about the Nine Old Men about a dozen years ago. And it was a Bible uh, for all of us. So there's no question I refer to that. Andreas Deja wrote a great book about the Nine Old Men a few years ago, also a Bible for all of us who wanted to know about them academically and personally. So I actually, uh, I know Andreas really well and went over to his house and talked a lot uh, about this show with Andreas and kind of had him um, voluntarily or not uh, come into the, into the um, process of selecting artwork. Because Andreas is, those of you who don't know him, is a world-class animator and a bit of an animation historian and is responsible for some of the greatest animation of all time. And he collects uh, drawings from all these generations of Disney films. So he has in his collection a lot of the artwork that appears in this show up at the Walt Disney Family Museum. So he was a component. Charles Solomon, who also uh, writes for uh, several blogs in the Los Angeles Times, um, on animation is a uh, historian who helped me in terms of the writing. So he had interviews going back with the Night Old Men on tape, and he was able to loan me um, interviews and audio that I could use to tell the story from his perspective. Um, the studio was really instrumental in, in loaning me the um, Disney Family album that you referred to earlier, which was a series of um, you know, really nice personal interviews with not just animators, but key talent from uh, the 80s, as you said. Uh, and and these, these were film clips of Wooly and, and Ken Anderson and Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson talking about the art of animation. And so it was important to me to have these guys tell their own story. Mm -hmm. uh, so as much as I could, I, I thought, you have the greatest storytellers of the 20th century. Why not have them tell their own story? So that's why we included a film in the exhibition. 
That's why there's a book that's part of the exhibition. So you can go in and enjoy it on an art, artistic level to be able to see the drawings, but you can also go in and enjoy it and watch film clips of these people talking about their art form while you see their animation moving on the screen. And I think that was a big part of what I wanted to do. So it's a real team effort. You know, I, I can be the front man and say, you know, gee, I did it all, but I didn't really. I, I'm a producer. I pulled it all together mm-hmm. with the help of some amazing people, uh, not the least of which is the staff at the Disney Family Museum, Michael Debris and and. Uh, oh man, Marina Delgado and so many of the designers and art directors and people up at the museum were hugely a big part of this. So, so that's my story. Yeah. No, and I and I liked and I had noticed what you'd mentioned about how they all tell their own story because that's what the museum does. Uh, Walt tells his own story in his own words, uh, you know, through the museum, and I, I thought it was wonderful that 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 narration was continued by the nine old men. In, in the exhibit itself. So. Well, they were such yeah. interesting guys. You know, I, I wish everyone that's listening could have s- just sit down and talk with them. And I, I was lucky enough to do that on a lot of occasions, sometimes in a office setting at the studio, but sometimes it would be at somebody's house late at night on a weekend, um, having a drink and sitting at their feet and just saying, well, tell us about Walt or tell us about... Uh, you know, the rap party after Snow White, or tell us who Freddie Moore was, or, and being able to hear the stories from them was really fun uh, and funny and entertaining. And um, so they were my mentors. They were the people I looked to. And, and I became a producer probably very directly because of the fact that I was working with Wooly and working with these people who did that and were really inspiring to me at that point in my young life. Mm-hmm. I think the other important thing about the exhibition is that when... When people are grouped under one name, like nine old men, we tend to think of them that they were all alike. And um, I think that the exhibition does an excellent job of showcasing each animator's individuality and their personality. Mm. Thanks. Great. I, I, that was a, one of the goals of mine, because they weren't all alike. And And let's be honest, they were artists with egos and... Uh, varying degrees of temperament um so it wasn't all golden sunsets all the time they there was jealousy there was competitiveness there was stress there was long hours um and part of the genius of walt disney really is that he was able to keep that group working together part of walt's i I think walt's in my opinion biggest single skill was casting he just could read people somehow and put them together in groups and ask them to do unconventional things because he believed in them so these nine guys nobody was more different than each other than these again like the impressionist painters you know you have van gogh with mental illness uh, sitting in an institution in saint remy in the south of france you have uh you know monet up above paris you have you know some of them never met but they are all contributing to the same art form well this is not dissimilar you have these great artists coming from somewhere architects somewhere uh, uh, newspaper caricaturists, some were uh, train enthusiasts, all contributing to this art form, but all really quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, something that really inspired me. I guess, you know, just to to hammer that point home, the thing that really inspired me about them is the way they lived their lives. They were not living as fanboys. Uh, they were living as 
curious, interesting, engaged artists. And that meant they traveled, they were interested in music, they were interested in fly fishing, they were interested in anything that, that piqued their curiosity. And that was the most interesting thing. They happened to express themselves in animation, but they could have just as easily been great painters. Some of them were, um, and, and great artists in pretty much anything they selected to do. <laughs> So let, let's let's talk about each of the animators just a bit, and what visitors to the Walt Disney Family Museum, um, you know, will see in the exhibition. Probably one. There's two that definitely every our listeners have heard of, and they're always paired up together. Let's start first with Ollie Johnston. He was he was one of the last surviving of Walt's um, nine old men, and Glenn Keane said that Ollie's pencil just seem to kiss the paper and and ollie one of the things i learned is ollie would use the pencil that belonged to freddie moore and uh, so uh, so what 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 should we know about ollie johnston well ollie was a, a gentleman all, all these guys were pretty much except maybe ward kimball um the, they they were more about that later um he was a, a he was studious uh a student he was funny um incredibly talented on the drawing board and and Glenn is right he would just his pencil would just kiss the paper he had at Freddie Moore's pencil sharpener he had you know a and Freddie was his um mentor the guy that taught him because again these guys were not the first animators there was a generation of amazing animators before them Bill Titla and uh you know Fred Moore and there's another show to be had about them someday um but um Ollie was just a gentle soul he was quite amazing though because some of his characters like Baloo the Bear um, or some of the characters from Robin Hood like Ka the Snake uh, were brilliantly animated and and were dancing like Baloo and Mowgli dancing together Um, and so he was a student of motion and movement he went to Stanford University smart gentleman uh, as did Frank Thomas they built their houses, Frank and Ollie, uh, next door to each other in a suburb of Los Angeles, just actually not more than five minutes from where I'm sitting right now. Um, and, and so he was a committed artisan of animation, I guess is the way you would say it. Um, possibly most importantly, he stayed behind um, and wrote a book with Frank about animation called Disney Animation, The Illusion of Life, which really illustrated the process of animation and was the Bible, still is today, of, uh, of animation for all of us kind of growing up on the craft. And on top of it all, he had a, um, a live steam train in his backyard, a small gauge live steamer, which he built himself. He had a little shop in his backyard uh, and it was one of a couple guys who got Walt Disney really excited again about trains. And, uh, you know, famously, if you were able to, you'd go over to Ollie's house on the weekend and take a little loop around his track uh, and enjoy Ollie's trains on the weekend. So amazing guy. Um, and, and in the same breath, you can talk about Frank Thomas, who was equally as amazing. Frank was a musician, a little more of an extrovert than Ollie, uh, but together they were like brothers. Um, also went to Stanford, and Frank was a jazz pianist. He played in the studio band. The studios had a like a lunchtime um, jam jam session for decades. I used to play in it back in the seventies when when Frank was still playing, and um, he was a great great Dixieland piano player. So much so that he was part of the Firehouse Five, which was a band that was started by Ward Kimball and a lot of the lunchtime jam session people. 
And, uh, you know, on top of that, he was a watercolorist. I put a lot of his student work uh, from Chenard into the show so you can see what he was like as a student. Uh, and he was uh, also a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant animator. Um, so the two of them were, were, you know, really kind of partners in their quest to do great animation. And, and what Ollie th talked about was feelings. You don't animate drawings, you animate feelings. Uh, and what Frank talked about was the same thing, performances. He didn't necessarily care if he was making a joke or dazzling the audience with his draftsmanship. He wanted you to be moved deeply. Um, the old saying is animators don't move drawings, they move people. They try to move you emotionally with their drawings. And that was the best memory I have of Frank Thomas, that passion for moving people emotionally, whether he was animating Pinocchio or the character Bambi or, or Captain Hook. You know, he, in, in Peter Pan, he animated Captain Hook and, and Ollie animated Smee. So, you know, that's, that's a good representation of who they were. Yeah. Well, when, when you think, when you mentioned Frank Thomas and, you know, characters of deep emotions, I mean, just think of that classic scene to the dwarves crying over Snow White's you know, dead body, and how audiences were moved to tears. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is famously the scene in the in the uh, premiere of the movie that moved the audience at the Carthay Circle Theater, and um, I think that was when all of the animators were amazed that they really had something they hadn't counted on, which was the emotion of animation. Animation had been funny for a long time. It was like a little comedy sideshow that would warm up the audience before the big feature. But now all of a sudden they were the big feature. And you have to remember too that Frank was 24 years old when he animated that scene, which astounds me. So he's, yes. out, of, he's out of school a couple years. Uh, Walt trusted him plenty to give him a scene like that. And he delivers something that profound, not by moving the characters a lot, uh, by by restraint, but again by moving the audience with this beautiful drawing that he created. So amazing, amazing guys. Yeah, that that that's why Chuck Jones once said, you know, Frank Thomas was the Laurence Olivier of animators. Yeah, well said. I mean, he really was. He was an actor with a pencil, and he happened to draw his performance instead of acting it out in person. But all these guys were great actors. Some extremely introverted, you know, Les Clark, John Lounsbury were pretty quiet men, um, but bold, great actors on top of it. Well, well, let's go from someone that was, we go from quiet and all that. Let, let's jump over to Ward Kimball. He's probably the, the one that folks know the most. Uh, I mean, he... He was definitely the most flamboyant, I think, of the nine old men. And at the, in the exhibition, in I think in the video, Pete Doctor says that um, you know Ward cultivated the wacky and sort of being the outlier character at the studio with his big round glasses and wearing his gorilla hands. And um, and but again, what what he did, his work was, you know, again was amazing. Yeah, it really was. I, um, he's one of the few people that Walt Disney himself called a genius. Uh, you know, in, in some of the Pete Martin um, interviews that Walt did long ago, he said, yeah, you know, Ward, I don't use that word often, but Ward's probably one of the kind of uh, talents you can call a genius, partially because of his unending curiosity. You know, and again, we, we talk about the lives these guys led. Um, he was a tremendous draftsman. He had worked so hard, and I, I put drawings in the show of him copying Fred Moore drawings on um, uh, Snow White 
and just so he could learn what the character looked like. So he's he's a student, and he's working really hard around the clock to learn how to do that. Um, and then he comes up with something like Jiminy Cricket, which could have been a disaster. It could have been an insect. And Jiminy Cricket's not. He's a, you know, he's a little little green man who is incredibly funny and entertaining, and that's because of Ward Kimball. Um, while he's doing that during the 50s, he's also playing trombone in the studio band, which becomes the Firehouse Five. And all of a sudden, he's got a recording contract, and he's animating during the day, and they're going and recording at nighttime and playing at Disneyland at nighttime, and they're on the Bing Crosby show at nighttime in their Dixieland band. So he's doing that. Uh, And while he's doing that, he's doing kinetic sculptures. And while he's doing that, he's painting and doing portraits and paintings around the house. And while he's doing that, he has a model railroad set, as a lot of us had in the 50s and 60s. And he's got that going in his backyard. And if that wasn't enough, he bought a complete full-size narrow-gauge train that he called the Emma Nevada and put it in his backyard on about 900 feet of narrow-gauge track and called it the Grizzly Flats Railroad. Well, excuse me, I mean, who does that? So it it wasn't enough that he was animating Jiminy Cricket, which would have been a life achievement for any of us, Um, but he was doing all this other stuff. And it was the most fun, probably, uh, I I can't say the most, but one of the most fun things on this show, putting it together, was going over to his family's house. And his son, John, actually lives pretty close to where I live, and I would just drop by there on my way home at nighttime and talk, and, and they're underwater with uh, artwork from Ward Kimball. All of it beautifully presented. All of it um, funny as can be. Caricatures, railroad art, serious art, sculptures, um, and and then collections. Collections of trains, collections of carnival memorabilia, a, a giant piece of a merry-go-round organ, and you know, things like that that, Walt, uh, that, that that Ward collected. So going through that and saying, okay, we have a hundred thousand pieces we could put on display for Ward Kimball. We could easily fill the entire Walt Disney Family Museum with Ward Kimball artwork. Um, what do you put in? How do you get that down to size? Uh, all you can do is a Whitman sampler of of many of these gentlemen because they're so uh, prolific. And so with Ward, the same thing. We said, here's here's a few of his paintings. Here's a few of his trains. Here's his engineer cap. Here's his fireman's cap. Here's his trombone. Here's a picture of him with Walt Disney at the uh, you know 1948 uh, Chicago Railroad Fair. And you know, and and you start to explain this guy. He was he was close to Walt as as close as anyone could get. Um, and and was able to go on trips with Walt and was able to do his railroading uh, with Walt. And I think that says a lot about Ward, his level of curiosity and his level of just being alive uh, was comparable to Walt Disney. And that's saying a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when... I, I think that the the sequence that he that I fascinated with and I watch over and over again is really the three caballeros. Because to me, that seems so Ward Kimball. Uh, the colors, the energy, the how he breaks all the rules, really, about animation. And it's hard to imagine it being in anybody else's hands. I totally agree with you. It's If your listeners want to take a look at it, it's that, that great scene where Donald Duck and Jose Carioca and, um, are, are singing and, and the Three Caballeros song. And characters and in the film like that we put together for the museum show we we have him talk about this characters exit screen left and come in screen right then they pull out a saw and saw out a hole beneath the characters but they don't drop away the entire set drops away and then they set the set on fire and then they rebuild it again you know it's it's this um 
it's like pink elephants on parade. It's a, it's a tremendous flight of fancy in the way that you wish all animation was. Um, Ward was just the leader in that kind of just fun and inventiveness, which he brought later to television. We haven't even talked about that, but Walt said, well, uh, let's give Ward Kimball the Tomorrowland television shows in the 1950s. So here you have this inventive guy who's playing with trains on the weekends and playing Dixieland jazz. Now he's hanging out with Werner von Braun, who's at the studio helping them tell the story of the future of space travel. And Ward was the guy that brought in the magazine. It was a Collier's magazine and said, look at this magazine. They go all the way into the future of space travel and what it might be to go to the moon. And Walt said, well, that's great. Let's expand on that and create these shows like Man on the Moon. And so now Ward is a director and he's working with these world-class scientists who are based in Huntsville. Alabama creating the space program and in many ways and I'm not exaggerating and I know you guys know this uh, Werner von Braun and the NASA scientists and the collaboration they had with Disney visualized the whole lunar landing and the whole Apollo and Mercury missions a decade before those happened and I think that it, it was a flight of imagination uh, that is huge it's huge and they deserve the credit for that now even the space shuttle is depicted in there it is yeah. three stage rocket launches. Um, you know, so much of that. Just you know, like today, we're, we're, I was listening to a story on NPR about how there's a generation of paleontologists now that grew up with the Jurassic Park movies 25 years ago, and now they're discovering dinosaurs every 10 days, and there's this huge boom in paleontology. Well, I think it's really the same with um, the space program and how that grew out of these television shows that we all watched. You know, they had audiences of hundreds of millions of people, and that turned into a passion for exploration. Uh, and, and space, and so much of that comes from Ward Kimball. Absolutely. And th- th- when you talk about television, I remember, I don't know if I was in high school or college, and The Mouse Factory aired. And my parents, of course, couldn't fathom why at my age I was watching Disney, because they thought it was for children. And I'm watching this, and I, I really didn't know anything about Ward Kimball at the time. And I'm thinking... Hmm, this is a little quirky, even for Disney. And um, and then when I learned years later he was behind it, I, I appreciated that series even more. <laughs> yeah, he, he he was quirky for sure. And he, as you mentioned to start this conversation, Pete Doctor suggested that he really cultivated that, and and that's very cool, you know. And and I, his family said he didn't really seek out the idea of being part of the night old man he was the ultimate individual really and he was the one that said listen animation's full there's hundreds of people that make animated films and he felt almost embarrassed i think by the by the title nine old men because it implied that they were the only ones so he had a humility about him glenn Keane talks about this too that, that if you said oh i loved uh, three caballeros and i loved jiminy cricket he would go oh yeah 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 but I, what i'm doing now is and he had a real f- look to the future he never sat back on his laurels and i think in that way he was very much like walt disney yes yeah always moving forward mm-hmm. now what's interesting is now out of the three we've discussed two of them were into trains walt was into trains so is there something inherent about the creative mind that's attracted the trains or, or is there something about trains that attract the creative mind well i can i can only guess but i think trains were in that era which would have been these are these are the children of the early 20th century and they would have grown up through and been working at the studio through a lot of the great depression um but in their childhood trains were their ticket out of there 
trains were not that old. Uh, trains were what we might look at as a an airport that you can go there, you can buy a ticket and go anywhere in the world. And Ward was a Midwesterner and Walt was a Midwesterner and that was their ticket out of farmland. They could buy a ticket and go to France. They could buy a ticket and sell sandwiches to people on the train. So I think symbolically the train was uh, a, a, a way to, to get out of their daily drudgery and a way to go out and have adventures in this world that was without limitations. Uh, so the train was a symbol of that, uh, you know, and then there's the kind of boyish attraction to belching steam and, and bolts and nuts and the mechanics of it all. But I think m- the metaphor of a train is more important, which was I can, I can go out there and have the biggest adventure I can dream of by getting on a train. Yeah, true, true. Now, Wooly Reitherman, he was, uh, he was known more for his bigger-than-life characters, especially action sequences, comedies, and he was, Walt well, well put Wooly in charge of animation as producer and director, and I, and I love this quote that's in the exhibition, that he said, I became a director because Walt said, be a director. <laughs> yeah, well, it goes back to Walt's ability to cast people. And Wooly was a natural leader. He was he was born in Germany, born in Munich, Germany, and came to America when he was two years old with his family. Um, studied at all these guys were art students at uh, Chenard or at at Arts uh, Arts Center College of Design in Pasadena. They were really um, the art student generation. And Wooly was um, powerful. He, he was when I was 20 years old working for Wooly, he was like John Wayne to me. He was, he wore Hawaiian shirts. He smoked a cigar, had a big voice. Um, he was in command. And part of that is because he was in command. He was, uh, an air force pilot. Um, he piloted planes in the second world war. He got the distinguished flying cross for his service in the second world war. So he's a little bit of a war hero on top of it all. Uh, plus his animation on, you think of monster of the whale and Pinocchio or, uh, the dinosaur battle in Fantasia, that's Wooly Reitherman. Big, powerful action guy. And that's who he was. His life mirrored that. He was full of that vitality that was in his animation. And so I think Walt saw some natural leadership in him. He was not a, a wilting kind of wallflower of a man. He was somebody who uh, could could lead and also understood as having been an animator, he understood the egos and the difficulty of of animating and how hard it is. And so he could take difficult characters and egos and help them work together. And I think also, and I put this in the short film we do for the museum, uh, Wooly wanted to keep the studio together. He was worried partially that when Walt passed away, the art of animation might go with him. And he felt like all the leadership was there to keep it going. If only they would recruit young people to come in the studio and new talent, it could keep going for a long, long time. And now we think back and say, well, God, there's 20 animated films every year, and how could that ever be possible? But it really was. There was a time when animation may have disappeared off the face of the earth. Uh, And Wooly is no small part of making sure it didn't disappear. And he actively, along with Eric Larson, along with Frank Anali, went out to college campuses and recruited people. And, And because of that, people like Tim Burton and Brad Bird and Pete Docter and Glenn Keane and me and everybody else came into the studio when we were kids and and were able to hang out and work with these guys. So he was a a bit of a visionary that way. And the fact that Walt threw him the car keys to animation and said, here, you know, I'm, I'm busy making Disneyland and all these other things. You drive for a while says everything about Wooly that Walt trusted him enough in that leadership position. Yeah. Now, one of the things that people have 
been critical of with Wooly is that they said that he would use recycled or limited animation from prior works, but things that I've read said that that was really more labor intensive and that Wooly did that to really ensure that the, the, the quality work was there. So, so what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think Wooly was a guy who didn't want to have any wasted movement. The animation staff was lean. Um, the money was being watched all this time after Walt had passed away. And if, if work had been done already, why not reuse it? it, it he was a, a very, he had a very green recycling approach to animation. Uh, and I was there. A lot of times I would go down and pick out the animation and bring it up to him so he could see it. So in Fox and the Hound, when I was working for him, there's scenes of Bambi in that. And, uh, and I'm guilty as he is because in, you know, when we got to Beauty and the Beast, we ran out of time and ran out of money. And we had this whole dance scene at the end of Beauty and the Beast. And we went to the archives and I pulled out the whole dance scene from the end of Sleeping Beauty. And that's, if you put them side by side, it's reuse animation. So um, call it uh, what you want, but it's an economy of um, using great animation um, a second and third time that gets you uh, a great effect on the screen. It's sitting there on a shelf. Why have somebody else redo it? You have a scene from Bambi and you can use it again, a scene of some dogs that, you know, maybe that mm-hmm. running towards the camera or something. Why have somebody redo that? So I, I understand that completely and I'm guilty of it as a producer also. Um, and get it because it's an economy it's an economy yeah. and and these movies are done under strict budgets and schedules and if you can save a couple of weeks of somebody's time and have them do something else boy i would do it today well and it's sorry to interrupt in that but i mean actual live action film directors do it all the time they take they take famous shots and they try to recreate them i mean the vertigo effect and having that launch with hitchcock and then doing it so famously throughout time with uh, with Spielberg and Jaws, it's it's just something that happens. So there's no shame in it. It's it, you learn from the people who created the art before you. Yeah, and we as fans may know that that's from another movie, but the general audience doesn't. Exactly. And as long as it's telling the story, uh, it's 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 fine. You know, there's the world is full of stock libraries of you know Arab helicopter shots of New York City that people buy off the shelf to use in their movies. Um, so I, I feel like I don't really have to defend Wooly. It's it's saying there's some great animation sitting on the shelf. Let's use it. And Wooly was a a driver when it came to getting a movie done. If he had six months left and looked, this happened on Rescuers, he would look at the movie and just say, okay, this is a nighttime sequence. We don't need whites on their eyeballs. Let's not paint the whites of the eyeballs. It's all nighttime and just get it out of here. And he would he, he would be scary. And he would just say, okay, okay, we'll get it out of here. Um, but he knew where to put the money. And I think that's the smartest thing I can say is, is, he, he knew that in, in emotional scenes that were slow and about character and, and emotion, that's where you want to put your money. If a character is running out the door and slams the door, you don't need all that detail. There's scenes in Jungle Book where he's spinning around and running. He doesn't even have a face. Um, you know, so you, you can put your money uh, where you need to in these movies, and that was his strength. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and uh, it, maybe this is a bit romanticized. I like the fact that then there's a connection back to a classic film or to one of the early animators when their work is reflected 
in a in a more modern film and and I like that connection in history well it, it is and it, and it's really saying that those those older films have enough worth so much worth in fact that you're happy to use them again and again it's it's not done so much now I think in the hand drawn era it was um a little easier to access that kind of thing now you you might say well let's use some animation uh from Toy Story 20 years ago, well, you can't because the technology's changed and the models are different and, and the technology's different. But back then, it was pencils on paper and you could uh, reuse things. And, and, and I think yeah. he did, too, a really brilliant effect. Yeah. Now, our, our theme park fans will pro- definitely know uh, this next one, next animator, Mark Davis. And Walt referred to Mark as his renaissance man because he could design design characters animate and do story work and well and of course he co- he he created maleficent and um and then he moved on to imagineering after 101 dalmatians and never never looked back so um so it's, it, and he was interested in fine art in his personal life too which is interesting he really was a renaissance man. There's a great book about his work out there from Disney Editions. But he uh, he did, after he he animated Cruella de Vil brilliantly on 101 Dalmatians, and then Walt said, hey, we could use you over here at Imagineering, and he left and never looked back, as you said, because he, he saw it as a chapter, another chapter to his life. He could have another experience. And like all these guys, he was incredibly curious, incredibly well-traveled. He loved oceanic art. He and his wife, Alice, who's also a Disney legend, um, collect art from their early travels to New Guinea. He was a fine artist and painted, sometimes in a really modern Picasso-esque style. Um, And I think he was a great storyteller. He was, you hate to say who was the best at this or that. He was clearly one of the best draftsmen, one of the best artists in terms of his drawing skills, because he had an interest in anatomy. He taught at Chouinard Art Institute. Um, He and Milk Call were probably the, the best in terms of their natural ability and, and hard work at just drawing, great drawings. So he brought that, in, but he had a great storytelling ability, and I think his gift to the parks was narrative. Is It's one thing to be on a, um, a merry-go-round or on a roller coaster or something, but the thing that Disney parks had that nobody else had was story, and many people contributed that. But when it came to the 60s and adding attractions like the Haunted Mansion or uh, Pirates of the Caribbean... A lot of that was Mark Davis saying, oh, we can, you know, here's a bunch of pirates trapped in a jail cell and the keys in the dog's mouth. That's funny. And that becomes an icon to all of us. Or here's here's a bunch of uh, Jungle Cruise explorers stuck up a tree with a rhinoceros at their butt. You know, that's Mark Davis. Uh, So you say he was able to draw it and communicate it, but his ideas were really great and entertaining. And I think that's why Walt really leaned on him just to say, let's bring all that fun and, and entertainment that you bring to animation and stick that in the parks. And they did in such an amazing way. And I think what we think of as the parks has a lot to do with Mark's contribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I know I, I know Craig and I've talked about this many times, but boy, do we wish the Western River expedition had been built at the Magic Kingdom. <laughs> I think I I put a piece of artwork uh, in the show uh, at the museum from that Western River. Uh, And if you see that, I think Pete Doctor is actually doing a new book on um, Mark Davis's uh, artwork and and, uh, experiences at Imagineering. And it is something I can't wait for because he's been able to unearth a much deeper story about Mark's contribution. But when I went over there looking for the show, I I went to the um, amazing people at the uh, Imagineering WDI library 
and they just opened the door and I just almost passed out because um, not only is all their John Hench artwork and everything else hanging on the wall, but uh, Mark's artwork is all there and it is huge. All these nine gentlemen were prolific uh, beyond anything you can imagine. It's not like they created a handful of drawings here and there. They created hundreds of thousands of drawings and paintings. Um, so, so much of the challenge of the show was to pick those out, the, the key moments, but the story is so much bigger on each of these guys than you could ever put on the wall of a museum. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Well, and you know, that there's the, the controversy about the switching out of one of the, of the auction scene, you know, in parts of the Caribbean. But when I was going through, I don't know, I don't know. I was reading something about Mark Davis. Lo and behold, there is a sketch of the redhead almost that Mark did is one of his many, many sketches that is pretty much as she's currently depicted on that attraction. And I thought, well, you know, if they're going to change it, at least they went back to Mark's drawings. It, exactly. And and I, you have to go back to Walt, too, uh, is he believed strongly that Disneyland was this ever-changing place. And, um, and so there's always a little controversy about it, and I respect people's opinions because you're messing with our childhood. You know, you're messing with these early memories that we have, but um, it, it's it's meant to change. It, it's meant to grow. It's meant to have different perspectives, and it's also the brilliance of Disneyland is it can do that. It can incorporate entire new lands if it has to. Rides can change, and it's it's always going to have that funny feeling like you do when. You know, you sell your car and somebody else drives off in it, and that's the car you have all your memories in, you know. But um, such is life. And I think Walt's, Walt knew that if it didn't change, it would become a museum. And I think that's the last thing Walt Disney wanted was, you know, let's make Disneyland into a national historic park. Uh, it's meant to be enjoyed and, and be relevant. And that's something that Mark did really well. Yeah. Uh, our, our next one is Les Clark. And now, he was really interesting. He was the first of Walt's nine old men. Very quiet, very shy, very dedicated. He joined in 1927, so he was really the only one that worked with Ub Iwerks in creating Mickey Mouse. And 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 and, and his is like, it's like a Hollywood story. He literally was discovered working in an ice cream shop, you know, a candy shop by Walt. It's a total Hollywood story. And and as you said, working with Ub Iwerks, he, he would be like somebody who was the mechanic for the Wright brothers in Kitty Hawk who also worked on the moon flight. You know, that that's his career. He spanned that many years in animation, metaphorically. So here he is animating uh, right out of a soda fountain that Walt and Roy frequented. Um, and the story is that Walt, you know, admired his work and his lettering. He just graduated from Venice High School. He said, yeah, well, you know, we have a little training program. Why don't you come over and see what you can do? And so it was a temporary job. Maybe you'll stay for a, a week, maybe a month. And, and 40 years later, he's still there. Um, what it, his strength is, aside from a great Mickey Mouse animator and many other things, was his longevity because he was the only guy, really, who went from the rubber hose, black and white Mickey and Ab Iwerks through the modern Mickey, through he animated famously the Sorcerer's Apprentice Mickey, um, and many, many other shows, to directing educationals and shows for television. So here he is, at, you know, directing television and directing films for 16 millimeter education for high school and that kind of thing. And he started out animating Mickey Mouse. So I think he was a guy that Walt loved to have around, obviously, was a problem solver. 
and was reliable as anybody. You know, if you gave something to Les Clark, he would get it done and it would be competent and great. Um, and, and who wouldn't want that? And I'm sure Les had his troubles and I'm sure Les, uh, you know, didn't have a perfect day every day, but it seemed like he did from everybody I've talked to and his daughter, uh, you know, a gentleman beyond compare and a guy who really was a fine artist. He painted, he had his great oil paintings, which I put in the show and uh, was a guy who really contributed to Disney by his artistry, but also his attitude and, and his willingness to do anything, uh, for this guy, Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting because you know, I was a teacher for, for decades, and I would always show, beginning of the school year, even when I taught college, is I would show one of the one of the productions he directed, Donald in Mathematic Land, to show my students how how much math is a part of our lives and a part of our world and why it is important to know it. <laughs> Exactly. And, and those are, we all, I watched that growing up in school and that was a big part of it. And that was Les Clark. The last time I got to watch it, it was in the uh, treasures from the Disney vault uh, section on TCM that I believe the same night also played a uh, documentary called waking sleeping beauty, but it may or may not have. <laughs> I think they did. I, I've heard of that documentary. Two two great classics together. Yes, in one night. <laughs> okay, our, the next animator is John Lounsbury, and he was described as quiet, self-effacing, kind, a gentleman. And according to Glenn Keane, he was the glue that held the nine old men together. I was surprised by that because we did a, a you know these new interviews with Glenn Keane and Andreas and and Eric Goldberg and all these you know Dale all all these great animators that worked with them, and when he said that I thought oh you know he probably was right he was again a gentleman and in this case uh, Lounsbury was raised in Denver Colorado. Um, moved out to L.A. Uh, went to school at Art Center which is an incredibly demanding art school great draftsman oh my god this guy could draw so if you think of uh, lady in the tramp uh tony the chef playing his accordion or if you think of alligator the alligator in fantasia um that among many other things is john lounsbury so um here's a guy who could draw like crazy went home at night and was a gentleman rancher he had a house and on some acreage in um the far western side of the san fernando valley on many acres um, that he built himself with his wife, Flo, Florence, which, and Florence is a story in and of herself. All these men had very powerful partners, interesting women. Um, so he went at home and, you know, raised uh, goats and horses and loved the Old West. He had a collection of branding irons and Indian uh, kind of arrowheads and things. And then sadly, his house burned down in the Malibu fire in California. We're just, we identified by our fires these days. But in um, 1970, the Malibu fire burned his entire ranch to the ground. And, uh, you know, he's a strong guy. So he rebuilt it again and his wife designed it. Um, and and sadly, John passed away not too long after that. He was one of the first nine old men to uh, to move on. And his wife Florence then had designed that house. She lived there a few more years and sold it to Jerry Van Dyke. Um, and then designed, eventually got married to an old flame of hers, Mel Shaw, who is the oh famous goodness. Disney legend. So Florence 
Lounsbury became Florence Shaw. So the Shaws and Lounsburys have a unique link between them. And they all moved up to uh, the Sacramento area and built a house on 20 acres up there that Florence designed. So interesting kind of Disney connected history. And, um, but you talk to people about Lounsbury and he's beloved is the only word I can think of, uh, from all the animators as a gentle guy who really knew and what he was doing and demonstrated that not through words or braggadocio or whatever, but through his work. Yeah. And he, it seemed like he felt he was, he was pushed into directing. It was something he never seemed to be very happy about. Well, he was an introvert, um, and not that there's not introverted directors, there are, but I don't think it was a goal. I think people f- may feel that animators, uh, you know, the logical next step is directing, but these were actors, and all actors can't and shouldn't direct. So I think he was he was a directing animator, so he had sequences that he could oversee, and he didn't mind that, but I think he was a reluctant director. He's not like Wooly, who lived his whole life as a leader, was very extroverted, enjoyed working with actors and things. I think for John Lounsbury, it would have been painful uh, to work with actors, to work with, uh, you know, the general kind of Hollywood community. Uh, But he did it, you know, because again, Walt understood it and had some, um, you know, kind of vision in Lounsbury of what he could do. A really great animator, though. And Milk Call was, I found his personality the most fascinating because he, he, Walt considered Milk the top draftsman, but unlike the other nine old men, he didn't carry a sketchbook. He didn't do art outside of his work at the studio uh, until he retired, I guess. And it, after 5 p.m., it was all about chess and fishing and apparently he's a very poor loser at chess according to um, Floyd Norman when he was on the show he said he would be known to just throw the chessboard out the door if he lost so it so it was interesting and he had very high standards and was a bit impatient if people didn't meet his expectations well he didn't suffer fools and i think uh Many of the nine old men were generous with their advice, and Milt was too, but he wasn't a teacher. And I, I don't know him as well as I do some of the other nine old men, but he wasn't the kind of person like Eric Larson that would say, come here, let's sit down, let me draw over the top of your drawing, and let me show you, and you might do a little more curve here, a little more of a straight there. That was not Milt. He would you know, look at your drawings and, and throw them down the hallway if they weren't up to a certain standard, because he expected you to do the work. He expected you to be at at the level he was and he was at the highest level he and mark i think were at the highest level so he's very outspoken guy um could be argumentative could be uh um andreas tells a story about him you know calling up walt and demanding to see walt and talk to him and having some you know big issue he wanted to talk about and walt would deal with that usually by waiting for two or three days until he called Milt back, and then Milt forgot why he was calling, and everything was fine. So he he had a little bit of a temper, but who cares? He was a brilliant animator, uh, talented fly fisherman, tied his own flies, drove exotic cars, and he says struggled with drawing. There's a little film clip that we use from the Disney fam, um, family album where he says, you know, I never, I never really, he doesn't say he didn't like drawing, but he struggled with it, he says, and I you know, he's sitting there drawing, of course, a perfect thumper on a piece of paper. And he just said, I really struggled with this. And it was not easy for me. I, I didn't get into this for the drawing. I got into this for the the performance and the acting, much like Frank Thomas said. So really interesting guy, fiery personality, exciting, I think, personality. 
and um, untouchable when it comes to the quality of his draftsmanship and animation. And uh, and then um, there's Eric Larson, another person who's described as gentle and soft spoken, and other he, a very kind demeanor. Other artists would come to him just to if they had something troubling them, and he was the one that he taught the charm of Disney animation, I guess, to new animators. Yeah, but he was also Peg from uh, Lady and the Tramp, so he had this sultry kind of Peggy Lee side to him also. Um, he was a, a, almost a grandfather figure to my generation. Um, and, and the important thing you mentioned just now is that these guys would help each other. They might have had egos, and they might have had uh, competitive relationships at time. But Ollie would take his drawings to Milt. Frank would take his drawings to Milt. Frank would take his drawings to Ollie. Everybody took their drawings to Eric. You know, so they were understanding that they wanted each other to succeed. And again, I think that's a little bit of the strength of Walt Disney is they were there to please the boss and to please their audience. And if that meant getting a drawing from each other, that was okay. They weren't so competitive that they couldn't talk or, you know, anything. So, um, interesting, interesting group of people. And Eric was, uh, the teacher amongst them all. He stayed there at the studio probably longer than anybody else. Towards the end, he was frustrated by the changes happening at the company. At that time, Michael Eisner had come into the company, and and as with anyone who had been there for 40 years, it was a big, big change. But he still showed up for work every day. He still worked with uh, the young talent coming in and really taught all of us um, how to draw and taught by example. He would take, I would take drawings to him, and he would put my drawings down, put a blank piece of paper on top, and the minute he did that, you'd see everything that was wrong with your drawing. And, and you know, it, it was like a magical drawing board. And he would go over it and say, "Well, his eyes should be a little bit bigger, and if you push this a little and push that a little bit." Um, amazing guy, and he wrote beautifully about animation and entertainment. Um, so I, I think anybody you talk to about Eric would be quite fond of him and, and grateful to all the legacy he left behind. Now, you, you mentioned several times about how Walt Disney really, they all wanted to please the boss. He sort of, he helped them work together. How, how did they all interact? What was the dynamics amongst them all when Walt passed? Did it change at all? Well, I I, th- I think it changed a bit. I mean, you had there was an opportunity when Walt passed for somebody to grandstand and try to, you know, take credit and try to move to the front of the pack. And you know, there wasn't anyone to particularly keep them in check anymore. But you have to really credit Wally Reitherman with keeping the group in check, and he did it by including them. He there, there's so many people in the entertainment industry that would have taken that situation and just said, okay, step aside, everybody. I'm the boss now. And Willie didn't. He was clearly the boss, but he would call these guys up into his office. And there's wonderful photographs uh, taken during the that era of him and the other nine old men in their office just coming up with story ideas and joking and trying to come up with business for the animators. So he his inclusivity, if that's a word, was responsible for keeping the egos and everybody else together. Uh, and I really have to point to Wooly for doing that. And he saw that that was necessary, a necessary part of his job. Because then when the animation came downstairs to be done physically by Frank or Milt or Ollie, they were in the room when the ideas happened. And they had ownership of it. So a very clever man, that Wooly Reitherman. Definitely, definitely. He was, he, was the, he, was a, he was the glue, it sounds like, after Walt passed. 
he was, and he was, he was had a lot of administrative issues uh, as well in terms of keeping on budget, keeping on schedule. He had a very expansive view that everyone shared, but he was in the driver's seat on a lot of those issues, and on top of it, in the driver's seat on recruiting and training. So he, there was a review board at the time that included people like Ken Anderson and uh, many others who were, weren't necessarily part of this nine, but were a thousand percent part of the uh, creative core of the studio uh, who reviewed new talent and portfolios coming in, who hired people like John Musker and Ron Clements and Brad Bird and Tim Burton um, and everybody. So um, really remarkable time when everything could have gone south easily and it didn't. Now, you know, the art of animation has changed so much. Now we're in the era of computer graphics. Um, how are the nine old men how do they continue to be relevant today in the field? Well, certainly in their writing they are, in the book that Frank Canale wrote, in a lot of the writings that Eric Larson did. Certainly by example, their work is studied extensively by anybody from students at USC and Chapman and any college out there to the professionals that are working at Disney and Pixar and any studio, by that, for that matter. So their example's still around. They're, they were the pinnacle of personality animation, um, more so than even the original generation of animators that started out with Walt. They were able to take personality and emotion to a level that no one else did. Um, and that set the, the, the bar really high for people that would follow. So I think if you talk to somebody like Pete Docter, who's in a position to know, he more than anybody, is a, a celebrant and fan of, of the Nine Old Men, has written books about them, is a student of them, and he's now creatively in charge of Pixar and understands the value of legacy. It, and it's so much like anything. If you're a painter, you'll study Sargent and Velasquez. If you're a sports star, uh, if you're Kobe Bryant, you're studying the generation that went before you and, and looking at the Chicago Bulls or something, and you're, you're studying plays and you're trying to learn the craft. Um, that's what we, these guys did with their original mentors. And that's what my generation did with the night old men. So I think there's a, there's a, a tremendous amount of respect for what they did. Now in your work, what, which of the nine old men have been particularly inspirational to you or do different ones inspire you depending upon what you're doing at the time? Well, I was closest to Eric and Wooly. Um, and, and so they have a, a certain relationship that I really admire. Um, but I was close too to Frank and Ollie. I admire them for all the writing they did. And it's probably responsible for all the writing I do now. Because if I have a topic that I think is useful that hasn't been written about, I look to Frank, Frank and Ollie's example for sitting down and trying to write about those topics. Um, Frank, because he was a musician and I'm a musician, I really admired his musicality and how he did his animation. So I think those four were the ones I knew the best and I was closest to. Um, I didn't know Les at all. I knew Mark uh, and, and had some lunches with him and things. I didn't really know Milt um, or Ward all that well. Uh, so it's really the, the closeness comes from just working with them, the rest of the guys and, um, and learning by their example and loved it. You know, like Eric used to go with his wife to 
Europe and hang out in Belgium in Bruges and talk about the old wool industry that dried up when the river silted in. And, you know, um, they used to, uh, Mark used to go with Alice to New Guinea when it was not easy to get to New Guinea and, um, and collect native oceanic masks and bring them home with some spears and a five sketchbooks full of things. So they had these expansive lives, which to this day I, I aspire to, even though I may never live the way they did. <laughs> Now, is at the in the Walt Disney Family Museum exhibition, you know, Walt Disney's Nine Old Men, Masters of Animation, is there a piece or a series of pieces that are your particular favorite? Wow, that's like who's your favorite kid? There, yeah. there are some. I mean, I everybody has one, and I tried to get a kind of a heroic piece for each of these nine gentlemen. Sometimes it's unexpected. I think with Ward Kimball, it's some of his personal paintings are amazing, surprisingly so. Um, we know Ward for Jiminy Cricket. We know Ward for that kind of thing. But his personal paintings, his oil paintings are stunning. Um, Mark Davis, the same way. I have like 10 Mark Davis original oil paintings in this show. And they hang right next door to Cruella DeVille and Maleficent and Tinkerbell. So here he is animating the most dynamic female characters of that era. And he's going home at night and painting, uh, you know, uh, scenes from Moby Dick and, and scenes from matadors fighting bulls and things like that, just to show the the depth of it. So some of those pieces are some of my favorites. Uh, Milt Call, there's a wire sculpture he does, and it's hard to explain unless you see it, but he's done a ballerina made out of coat hanger wire um, that is a drawing in three dimensions. And it's almost a... Uh, a precursor to what we would now consider a vector drawing in computer graphics, uh, like a line drawing in space. And he's doing that out of coat hangers, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So e each artist has a really unique piece. With John Lounsbury, I have his, his branding iron collection of all things. But that was iconic, and that was part of his love of the West. Um, so I tried to pick out something that was Disney, but also something that was personal, because uh, these guys were, again, very expansive in their interests. Yeah, and... It's a magnificent exhibition. Um, this is running through January 7th at the Walt Disney Family Museum. It's Again, it's Walt Disney's Nine Old Men, Masters of Animation. So everyone has ample time to run out and visit the museum and learn about the Nine Old Men, see their art, their personal works, and some of the personal artifacts. I mean, I, I learned quite a bit about fly fishing <laughs> in one of the displays. Yeah, and, and Wooly's uh, Distinguished Flying Medal is there with the propeller off of his airplane. Things like that you wouldn't expect by going to the Disney Museum. But I, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And there's a, a book due out in October that is a pretty inclusive um, program for the exhibition that has a lot of the artwork and personal items from the exhibition. And that'll be out from the Disney Museum Press. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I think I, I'm on there. Uh, I, I'm on the waiting list for it. So, now, are you working on any projects that you can share with our listeners? Well, I, you know, I just finished a documentary about Howard Ashman, um, and so that's probably the most recent thing that is out there that's not quite been released yet. We did a preview screening of it and a kind of premiere in New York at the Tribeca Film Festival. Uh, and I'm happy to say we sold out four screenings and the, the response from the audience was really humbling and breathtaking. Um, Howard's story is magnificent and so much of the uh, benefit of his work, we are still living today. Uh, great Disney movies that Howard was responsible for 
you know, we're the foundation of a lot of work that's going on now. So I always wanted, from the time I did Waking Sleeping Beauty, I always wanted to tell his story in more detail. And a couple of years ago, the planets were in alignment and I talked to his family and everybody was willing. And um, so we just went around the United States, pulled his interviews and clips and, and things that had never been seen before and him working with actors and actresses. And I wanted Howard to, again, tell his story and show his process because uh, the movie's not only a biography, but it's instructive. It's why was this guy so interesting? Why was Howard's work so groundbreaking? Uh, and that's what the film's about. So it, we're working with a distributor right now, and we'll be, we'll be available and want to announce where it's going soon, probably in the next month or two. Uh, and I'll certainly let you guys know where it's going to end up and it should be available then for people around the world to be able to see it, uh, on a streaming service near you. Oh, that'll be wonderful because I always found it interesting, you know, on some of the, the Blu-rays that have been released of the films that he worked on, you know, there's the behind the scenes little featurettes and you would see him working and talking, and I thought and he was fascinating. So I'm really looking forward to the documentary. Yeah, thank you. He's a, really the smartest guy in the room, but he didn't he didn't behave that way. He just was incredibly educated. He had his master's degree in theater, so he could quote chapter and verse pretty much from any play or opera. Um, but collaborative, um, funny, funniest guy I've ever known. Um, and and sadly passed on from you know during the AIDS epidemic uh, in a in a tragic way. So it's a joyful story with a tragic ending, but his legacy is also joyful and and well worth telling. And it's told very much in the style of Waking Sleeping Beauty with found objects and clips that uh, hopefully you've not seen before. Oh, wonderful! Looking forward to that. Now, can our listeners um, follow you on social media? Well, yeah, it, it, I'm on Facebook. I'm on. Um, uh, Twitter, although I don't tweet a lot, but uh, there's a donhan.com website. And everything I'm doing is usually on there in some form or another. There's links to my books. And uh, if I'm doing any lectures or screenings, for example, I'm going up to the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet this weekend um, oh. to visit everybody in Seattle and talk about my book. And um, so that's always on donhan.com. And that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Excellent. Excellent. So once we. When people see the exhibition, Walt Disney's Line on Men, Masters of Animation, what do you hope they take away from it? Um, collaboration, um, the benefit of study and hard work, um, the benefit of this group of people collaborating together, the um, perfect storm that it was at Walt Disney Studios during the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s. 40 years of a perfect storm, you know, uh, a lot of that is their leader. They respected uh, Walt Disney and he was a generation older than they were. So they looked up to him uh, and he gave them a lot of opportunities. So that perfect storm between a great leader, the Steve Jobs kind of leader, visionary, and people that were uh, followers, but not slavish followers. They were collaborators. I don't, th you know, yes, Walt was their boss, but also they collaborated. They wanted to contribute to the conversation that Walt was having, whether it was movies or theme parks or whatever. So that idea of collaboration and excellence in entertainment is what this show is all about. And hopefully you take that away from it. Wonderful. Um, I definitely did. And again, I want to encourage our listeners to, this is definitely a reason to go to the museum. Uh, if you've never been 
good reason to plan a trip. And if you have been to the museum, go back. It's it, They're constantly changing their permanent exhibits, and they change their special exhibits. So here's an excellent reason to revisit the Walt Disney Family Museum between now and January 7th, 2019, to see Walt Disney's Nine Old Men Masters of Animation. And so, John, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Connecting with Walt to share your stories about Walt's Nine Old Men and your personal stories. It is my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. It's always fun to talk about these things because I was a um, lucky guy and a beneficiary to be around the studio when these people were still working there. And there's no question they were my uh, mentors and in many cases, my heroes. Yeah, thank you. Well, I hope you'll join us again. Thank you. I sure will. Well, great episode, and here we are now for our This Day in Disney History Quiz. This time it is for the week of July 14th, and I know you have all been wondering which member of our Connecting with Walt family was selected to be our very first guest on the uh, on on our history quiz. Who's not related to the Diz in some way, and we are delighted to welcome Willis Ward to Connecting with Walt. Willis, how are you today? Doing wonderful, and yourself? Oh, fine, thank you. Craig is here. He's warming up oh, in his corner. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> so, so Willis, tell us just just tell our listeners just a little about yourself. So they, they um, well, um, I live in North Carolina. I've been here for um, over twenty years. Um, was a military brat and lived primarily in the South. So, um, and just love going to Disney and doing all, everything related to Disney. So. Excellent. Great. Well, you're in the right place. And I, I assume I you're still, are you still digging out from winter snow? <laughs> no, we're lucky. We don't get as much of that. Now, we're in the heat and humidity, about oh. as bad as um, Orlando. Oh, well, no wonder you like Walt Disney World. You feel right at home there. <laughs> Actually, becoming more and more um, in tune with Disneyland. So. Excellent. My, my kingdom. I appreciate that. All right, let's just run through the rules here for for any new listeners. Uh, If you choose not to hear the multiple choice options, you will receive three points for a correct answer. If you choose to hear the multiple choice options, you will receive two points for a correct answer. If um, if you ask me to remove an incorrect option, you will receive one point for a correct answer. If you correctly answer the question after your opponent, Craig, answers the question incorrectly, you will receive one point. Now, some questions may have opportunities to earn bonus points. You can earn one point for each bonus question correctly answered. In the event of a tie, there will be a tiebreaker question. You may find having pencil and paper at the ready helpful for the bonus question. So are you both ready to go? Yes. I think I'm ready to take him on. Excellent. Okay, Willis, Willis now this is, um, you know, it used to be that most of the time whomever chose first, because there were seven days in a week, there were seven questions, They it, would, it could have been an advantage to go first. But we are, um, there, there is a twist in here this time. It's not necessarily, there's an even number of questions. So now it's all strategy. You know, do you want do you want to go first as our guest, or do you want to throw it to Craig first? Hmm. I think I'm going to throw it to Craig first. All right. Okay, okay. Craig, here you go. 
All right. So, Craig, for July 14th, Disney actor Tommy Kirk's last film for the Walt Disney Studios was released on July 14th, 1965. What is the name of this film? And bonus points are available for this question. I am going to have to go with multiple choice. Okay. Was it A, Son of Flubber, B, Bon Voyage, C, The Monkey's Uncle, or D, Savage Sam? Um, what was A again? Sorry. Son of Flubber. Okay. I need to eliminate one. All right. Let's eliminate... Uh, a bon voyage. Hmm. Um, I, I've only seen two of the movies on the list. Um, and I, I could be wrong. I don't remember him being in son of flubber, but I do believe he's in monkey's uncle. So I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with C. Monkey's All right, and that is correct. This starred Tommy Kirk in his last Disney film, and Annette Funicello in this one. College whiz kid Merlin Jones, who's Tommy Kirk, devises a method for teaching advanced information to a chimpanzee, then creates a flying machine of his own design. Hilarity and chaos ensues. So, okay, Craig. So you have one point here now. Excellent. There's a couple of bonus questions. Okay. So for the first bonus question, The Monkey's Uncle is a sequel to another Disney live-action film. What is the name of that film? Oh, um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Willis, do you want to try? Do you know that what is The Monkey's Uncle a sequel to? I probably have seen it, but I can't for the life of me, remember what the name of it is. So I have no answer. Okay. It is a sequel to The Misadventures of Merlin Jones. Oh. Yep. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Those are fun films. So. All right, Craig, Craig, bonus question number two. A popular music group made their film debut in The Monkey's Uncle. Who was it? Oh, um... I um I'm gonna take a guess, and it's probably going to be wrong. Was it the turtles? No, but I understand why you would have said that. <laughs> so no, it wasn't the turtles. Willis, do you know who made what? Who made their? motion picture debut which music group I, I mean I I know who I'd like to say but I don't think it was there's any relationship to Disney with this group and it sort of makes sense with the name the monkey's uncle I'm going to say the monkeys but I don't think that's even remotely close so no well it, it's sort of remotely close but no it was the beach boys they backed oh, um, Annette uh. Funicello on the title song um, Monkey's Uncle and which was written by the Sherman Brothers I don't think I ever realized that yeah yeah 
So, okay. All right, Willis, over to you. Uh, for July 15th, Disneyland Space Mountain reopened on July 15th, 2005, after a two-year refurbishment. Which NASA astronaut presided at the opening ceremony? I, I, I multiple places, please. <laughs> Was it A, Neil Armstrong, B, Buzz Aldrin, C, Sally Ride, or D, John Glenn? Okay, so you said Neil Armstrong, um, Buzz, um, Buzz Aldrin, Aldrin and, and who was the... Sally Ride and John Glenn. And John Glenn. Huh, 2005. Unfortunately, I, mm, I don't remember who was still alive or... Oh, I thought you were going to say, oh, and I wasn't born then. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> um, I, I, wow, this is rather interesting choices here. I mean, all names I recognize. I'm just trying to think who could have. I mean, um, I'm going to do Buzz Aldrin. I'm going to say him. All right. Final answer. Yep. That is incorrect. Okay. Ah, Craig, over to you. Was it Neil Armstrong, Sally Ryder, John Glenn, who was at the opening ceremony for the refurbished Space Mountain in 2005? Oh, since we know it wasn't the second person on the moon, I'm going to go ahead and go with the first person because I feel like John Glenn would have been way too old. And Sally Ride, I don't ever remember her doing anything with Disney. Well, remember John Glenn actually went up in a space shuttle years after this, didn't he? But you are correct. Um, Neil Armstrong, you are the first Excellent. man on the moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the original Space Mountain keeps the original track layout, but it has new special effects and theming. Very good. So two points, Craig. When did John Glenn die? I don't know. Wasn't it fairly recently? It could have been. I'm... Uh, well, of course, recently to me is, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. Okay, great. Excellent. Okay. Um, I'm Craig, I think it's over to you. Yes. Okay, you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation of this last name, but this one's right up your alley for July 16th. Muppet performer David, okay, G-O-E-L-Z. Okay, thank you. Is born in Burbank, California on July 16th, 1946. Working with Henson Associates as a part-time puppet builder starting in 1973, Goltz went on to become a full-fledged Muppeteer and the voices of Gonzo, my favorite, and Bunsen Honeydew. What is his Epcot Center connection? Uh, Here's a hint. It's not a rainbow. Multiple choice. A. Did he design the unique large-headed walk-around characters for World Showcase? Which are a little scary. Um, B. He is the second person to voice Figment, the mascot of the Imagination Pavilion. C. He provided the voices for Phineas and Ferb, Agent P's World Showcase Adventure. D. He provided several of the voices for the audio-animatronic characters in Spaceship Earth. Um, I'll take one away. 
All right. I will remove. He provided the voices for Phineas and Ferb, Agent P's World Showcase Adventure. That was so helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Just a little sarcastic. (laughs) Yes. Um, um, I have it down between two and... 50-50. Yeah, it's tough. I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with A, the big heads. Big heads. No, that is incorrect. Those were creepy, though. Okay. Willis, you have a 50-50 chance here of getting one point. (laughs) So was David Goltz, was was he the second person to voice Figment, or did he provide several of the voices for some of the characters in Spaceship Earth? Wow. I mean, those were the ones I was thinking, because I didn't, you know, given that he's a voice actor, I wouldn't think he was doing the answer for A. Um, Because I can't remember, I remember hearing who the second person was that did the Figment voice, um, but I don't think it was him, or I could be, again, wrong. Um, I'm going to go with D, some of the animatronics in Spaceship Earth. Yeah, you know, surprisingly, he was the second person to voice Figment, <sighs> mascot wow. of the Imagination Pavilion. Yeah. And what so. do you know what for? Like in the next iteration of Imagination with Figment? I I don't know when. Yeah, I don't know when he stepped in for okay. it. So. Huh. <laughs> I didn't do all my research there. So, okay. All right, so Willis, over to you. And since you love Disneyland so much, we you have July 17th. On July 17th, 1955, Walt Disney officially opened Disneyland. Other noteworthy Disney events did take place over the years on July 17th. For three points from this list of events that I'm going to read, which one did not take place on July 17th? And bonus points are available. So which one of these did not take place? A. After 54 years of service, Marty Sklar, Executive Vice President and Walt Disney Imagineering Ambassador, is honored with a tribute window at Disneyland on Disneyland's 54th birthday. Or B, in 2002, an electrical fire at around 3.30 in the morning at Walt Disney World's Epcot forces the theme park to close for the day. The fire cuts electricity to several areas of the Florida resort. C. In 1971, Cliff Edwards, the voice of Jiminy Cricket, passes away at the Virgil Convalescent Hospital in Hollywood, California at age 76. Or D. Wally Bogue makes his first official performance as Pecos Bill traveling salesman in a Golden Horseshoe Review on July 17, 1955. Hmm. Interesting. I, w- I w- definitely would never have guessed any of those. <laughs> Um, one of these is not correct. Oh, okay. One of these is not correct. Okay. So I'm, I'm supposed to one of these did not take place on July 17th. Okay. Um, we read, uh, we repeat the, the answer for D for Wally Bogue again. Wally Bogue makes his first official performance as Pecos Bill and the traveling salesman in the Golden Horseshoe Review. Hmm. I mean, because I think I remember hearing, you know, they did did the stuff leading up to the opening of Disneyland. Hmm. 
Wow. Um, I'm trying to... Oh boy. I'm going to go with D. That's when I was thinking with Wally Bo because I thought he did it before the park opened officially, you know, with the any pre-party that, you know, Walt did with Lily and for their wedding anniversary. That's what I think I've heard. But I can, mm-hmm. again, incorrect. You're right. And that was the unofficial debut for on July 13th for Walt and Lily and Disney's private anniversary party. But we were looking for the official debut. And that mm-hmm. was actually the day before. <laughs> So you are correct. It was oh, actually, cool. <laughs> yeah, I know. I threw you off there, right? Actually, the day before Disneyland's debut, the gold, um, the Golden Horseshoe Review um, ran for a private party for corporate sponsors. So you got two points for that one. So everything Yay. else happened on a July seventeenth. So it's a tie now. Two to two, and I believe we are now over to Craig for July 18th. So, Craig, on July 18th, 1965, Walt's favorite restaurant at Disneyland reopens as the Plaza Inn. What was this restaurant's original name? Uh, oh. Um, I think I know this one. Because if I'm correct, there is still a tribute to it at the park today, which is my favorite restaurant at Disneyland, which of course is the 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 little red wagon. It was the it was the red wagon. Red Wagon Inn. You are correct. I thought, okay, if you got this wrong, I I would have been so I, disappointed. I, I knew it was a Red Wagon. I couldn't think if it was Red Wagon Restaurant or if they kept the inn. So yeah, I went no. with the inn. Yep. The Red Wagon Inn opened since July 17th, 1955, was the park's top restaurant and Walt's personal favorite. Very good. So you pulled ahead five to two. Over Willis. You got unlucky that it was corn dogs fueling that (laughs) one. Yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. uh, Anyway, okay, so Willis, July 19th. Due to the Great Depression, the Lionel Corporation, an American toy manufacturer and retailer, was on the verge of bankruptcy when Disney signed a contract with them on July 19th, 1934, to produce this item. What Disney item saved the Lionel Corporation from bankruptcy? Hmm... 1934. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm going to have to go with multiple guess. Was it A, a Mickey Mouse watch, B, Mickey Mouse wind-up hand car, C, a Mickey Mouse tricycle, or D, Mickey Mouse ready-to-play train set? Oh, not what I was thinking. So, um, okay, you said Mickey Mouse watch. Um, what was? Repeat them again, please. Sure. It was a a Mickey Mouse watch. B Mickey Mouse wind up hand car. C Mickey Mouse tricycle. Or D Mickey Mouse ready to play train set. Um, I, th- I mean, I wouldn't think a toy company would be doing watches, even though I know that was a really popular thing. I'm going to go with the 
train set because I, I a lot of times when I've heard the word Lionel, I've always associated with trains. So I'm going to go with D. The toy trains and model railroads are its main claim to fame. However, this is actually a current item they are producing. They were not producing it in during the Depression. So, Craig, over to you. So, um, so what saved the Lionel Corporation from bankruptcy? Was it a Mickey Mouse watch, a Mickey Mouse wind-up hand car, or a Mickey Mouse tricycle? They were a toy manufacturer and retailer. Um. Well, I was thinking the exact same thing as Willis. I only know Lionel from trains. I know it's not the watches. That I think from the second I have one of the reproductions, I thought that Mickey Mouse watches debuted with Ingersoll and stayed with that uh, for a long time. Um, I guess I'll go with the tricycle then. Okay, final answer? Yeah. That is incorrect. The wind-up hand car will be widely credited with saving the company. Lionel will manufacture 250,000 units, and they will still be unable to keep up with the demand. Hmm. So, wow. And you can see one at the Walt Disney Family Museum. So I've never been. Okay. Yeah. I've never been either. That's where I want to go one time. So you have to, have to, especially if you come out to Disneyland. Gotta hop up to San Francisco. Okay, Craig, over to you for July twentieth. This Disneyland attraction debuted on July twentieth, nineteen fifty-five. It will be the park's first permanent attraction to close. What was the name of this attraction? Uh, multiple choice. That's the name. Is it is it A, the Tomorrowland Boats, B, Crane Company Bathroom of Tomorrow, C, Pack Mules, or D, Mineral Hall? I know it's not Mineral Hall because I talked about that, I think, on the Disneyland of Our Dreams. I feel like the only one I've never heard of is the bathroom, so I'm going to go with B, Bathroom. Okay, that is incorrect. That was open from 1956 through 1960, shockingly, oh. in Tomorrowland. Willis, over to you. What was the park's first permanent attraction to close? Was it the Tomorrowland Boats, the Pack Mules, or Mineral Hall? Oh, wow. And I happened to watch some YouTube video, and I think they, they were talking, I had never heard of the, any of these, at least the Tomorrowland Boats or the Pachmills, but I remember them talking about it. I'm going to go with A, the Tomorrowland Boats, because I think they had problems with the capacity and they were overheating and things like that. You are correct. Unreliable engines caused this ride to be the park's first permanent attraction to close. Huh. So the Tomorrowland Boats, they were later named the Phantom Boats. Okay, very good. So um, three, so you're catching up there with Craig. And um, let's go. Oh, now it's time for the trivia question. And I, Willis, I believe it's your turn there. Correct? Okay. What did the Kalamazoo Manufacturing Company give to Walt Disney, who promptly installed it in Disneyland? Um, okay. I don't have an answer <laughs> okay would you like multiple choice yes please <laughs> okay all right is it a lafitte's anchor originally installed in frontierland and is now displayed in new orleans square 
B, the model of the U.S. Capitol building in the lobby of Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. C, statues of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, now in Snow White's grotto. Or D, the hand car, now on display on an adjacent track at the Main Street train station. Hmm. Kalamazoo. Okay, and you didn't give a date for this. No, I did not. So, I mean, I've heard about the statues of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, but I can't remember who, what company or how that came about. I can't remember about that. I Honestly, I don't think I've seen the anchor. I've, the Great Moments of Lincoln, that have only been in there one time in recent years. Unfortunately, I need to do it more often. Um uh, I, I'm just going to guess, because it's the only one I can at least think of, is the statues of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So, see. Okay. There are all kinds of myths surrounding that one um, about how Walt, how those got to Walt. But no, that is incorrect. The Kalamazoo Manufacturing Company did not give those to Walt Disney. So, Craig, over to you. So uh, you can break the tie because I think we're tied right now, three to three. What did the Kalamazoo Manufacturing Company give to Walt Disney, who promptly installed it in Disneyland? Is it Lafitte's anchor, the model of the U.S. Capitol building, or the hand car? I believe I actually am. I'm way ahead. Yeah, you were I'm five. To, it was five to three. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. You're right. I can't even read my own writing here. You're right. Um, I, now I see it. five to three. Thank so you. Is is my victory lap? I'm just going to. I'm going to guess the train car. The hand car. Yeah. That is absolutely correct. Well, it is yeah. the hand car. So six, six to three. Great job, Craig. Yeah, no. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, no, congratulations. It, listen, corn dogs were the were the factor in this <laughs> that one. Is, that's right. <laughs> you just never know how these questions are going to go. So, so Willis, of course, you have to come back next week, and you know you've you've got to, um, you know you you've, you've got to see if you can, uh, you know, myself, come ahead yeah. here. That's right. You got to redeem yourself. So we will look forward to having you back next week on Connecting with Walt. Well, great. Looking forward to it. Excellent. What, what? So, what do you think? What, what? What have you learned about the nine old men? I learned obviously more than uh, more than I knew going in, uh, and, and by that I mean I. It's it's not every day that we get to talk to someone who actually knew some of them. So I I was impressed, but I knew Don Hahn was there as they were as they were retiring i didn't realize how many were still there yeah mean me neither um and not only that but i it, it i think it's really a testament to who don is as a person uh just based on the conversations uh the conversation we've had with him now and what i've seen from him uh, throughout any form of media the man is an instant magnet as soon mm-hmm. as he starts talking you just feel a genuine connection and mm-hmm. like I, I would never say this but i'm going to is you you feel like his best friend as soon as he starts talking yeah. and so well, i can fully understand how he got to know uh, the ones that it, that he did so well because that's just it seems like it's just in his personality to to become friends with anyone he comes into contact with 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think like Walt and some of the nine old men he described, Don is a storyteller. We know that through his work, and I and I think that I think storytellers tend to be warm and genuine, you know, in in many ways, and mm-hmm. and I think that comes out in Don's personality. I've heard him speak in person many times, and and th- 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 he definitely exudes a warmth and a friendliness and a familiarity. He also has a really, uh, he has a great sense of humor. I mean, it's um, a very good wit yeah. with, with, with a little, with a little, you know, hint, uh, I don't know. If sarcasm is not quite the word, but definitely a, 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 a definitely a, a little tiny, tiny edge to it, but it's not mean or malicious. It's oh, humorous. Yeah. I know exactly you know, what you mean. It's, yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's great. So he's, fun to listen to in in person oh yeah absolutely and even on this i it was our pleasure being here to to sit and listen and hear don talk and so i i only hope that uh, for everyone out there who who did listen to this too got the same uh, enjoyment that we did because it, it these types of things just don't don't come across our plates every day and we've been so lucky to talk to so many amazing people uh through connecting with walt and it's just that uh, another person on top of here and definitely one of one of the highlights for sure oh absolutely so we hope that our connecting with walt family really enjoyed our conversation with Don. And this conversation with Don is just the beginning. Uh, over time, we are going to examine uh, the lives of and accomplishments of each of the nine old men in depth. So uh, so stay tuned. Uh, you know, you, you never know when um, an episode on one of the nine old men will um, pop up mm-hmm. from time to time. So, uh, of course, there's a, a big celebration coming up uh, you know i don't wish all the disneylanders out there happy 63rd anniversary you know on july 17th to disneyland it feels like just yesterday it was 1955 <laughs> well for me you know i was i was just a twinkle in my parents eye <laughs> hard to hard to believe i know but i'm not qu- i'm almost as old as disneyland but not quite yeah so, anyway so so craig until next time where can our listeners connect with you on the dis unplugged now as always you can find me tuesdays on the walt disney world edition podcast thursdays on the universal orlando podcast uh wednesdays on the best and worst of walt disney world and random days on the dis daily fix and as always on twitter and instagram at teleclaster michael what about you Great. Well, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. And Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And of course, you can connect with me and Craig on con- on Connecting with Walt on Twitter at Connecting Walt. And if you would like to learn more about Walt's Nine Old Men, uh, visit the Walt Disney Family Museum by January 7th, 2019. We will have a link to their site in our show notes. And Don Hahn did mention some of my favorite reference books on the Nine Old Men. And just to recap those, uh, The Nine Old Men, Lessons, Techniques, and Inspirations from Disney's Greatest Animators by Andreas Deja. 
Walt Disney's Nine Old Men and the Art of Animation by John Canemaker. Although that one might set you back a bit just because I believe that one's out of print. And The Illusion of Life, Disney Animation by Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston. That is just a classic. Um, that, that should be in every uh, you know Disney fan's library. And if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplug.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.